All right, well, praise God. Good morning, church. So good to be with you guys, whether online or in person. So glad that you have joined us for worship this morning. It is my joy to be able to open God's word and to proclaim it to you. My name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And I would invite you, if you have a copy of God's word this morning, I sure hope you do, um, phone, book, whatever, I ask that you take it out and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. If you've been paying attention around here, um, we, we just finished up sort of a series where we have been talking about, dreaming about what it would look like for the Lord to renew us as a people. Our hope, our plan as of last week was to actually be back into 1 Corinthians, which we started back in the fall. But um, the section of 1 Corinthians that we were diving in started back in, in section 11, chapter 11 through 14. The focus really of that, that chunk of 1 Corinthians is on public worship and, and the order of public worship. Now, if, you're, if you've been around Parkview for, for much this year, you know that we are sort of in a phase as a church where we are trying to clarify our vision of what the Lord has for us moving forward. Um, and, and, and for us as, as, as pastors, we thought, you know, it would be really strategic for us that as, as we bring clarity to what our vision is, and, and that certainly involves what we do here on a Sunday morning, um, that, we would, that we, we would use 1 Corinthians as sort of a strategic way to cast that vision and to rally our church around what, what even we do on Sunday mornings. And so as a result, um, between now and Easter, we're going to launch into a new series and it is the book of Deuteronomy, okay? Now, my guess is there's probably very few of us here this morning who have ever sat through a preaching series through the book of Deuteronomy, okay? If I had to guess, I would guess there's, I could probably count maybe on one, maybe two hands the most, I don't know, people who actually listened to an entire preaching series on the book of Deuteronomy. And I will say, because of that fact, guess what? That's why we need to preach Deuteronomy, okay? The book of Deuteronomy, you will see, and this is my prayer, is that as we go through this book, that you will see that this is an absolutely crucial book of the Bible. Now, of course, we could say that about every single Bible that we preach, and every single Sunday, I stand up here and say, open your Bibles to fill in the blank. I could say that exact same statement, right? But there is the theological and the historical significance of the book of Deuteronomy simply cannot be overstated. It is an incredibly crucial book in the Bible for a number of reasons. First, it helps us understand the Old Testament, right? Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. It's the end of the Pentateuch, right? And it, it really is this, this Pentateuch, the first five books are sort of the, the main building block of all of the Bible. And, and Deuteronomy, what it really is, is sort of a wonderful recounting of God's grace as experienced by God's people from Genesis through Numbers. It, it tells us the story of what God is doing with his people in this world. From that, then on, Deuteronomy actually helps us make sense of everything that will come. So as we read through the stories of the kings and the Psalms and even into the prophets, if we don't have a basic understanding of the book of Deuteronomy, we will struggle to understand the Bible because they're constantly referring back to what is said in the book of Deuteronomy. So it helps us make sense of the Old Testament. 
But it doesn't just help us make sense of the Old Testament, it also helps us make sense of the New Testament. As we open up our Bible and we read the New Testament, when we read the stories in the life of Jesus, the book of Deuteronomy is the book that Jesus refers to most. When he preaches the Bible, when he talks about the Bible, when he refers to the Old Testament, over and over again, he is pulling from what God has said in the book of Deuteronomy. So, so Jesus teaches it, right? Secondly, we see Jesus put it into practice. He uses the book of Deuteronomy in his life as he's tempted into the wilderness. Maybe you're familiar with the story in Luke 4. Three times Satan tempts him and three times Jesus responds. Every single time, guess where his response comes from? The book of Deuteronomy, right? So for Jesus, the book of Deuteronomy is just practical for resisting the temptations of the devil, okay? And if this book is so precious and so practical for our Savior Jesus, well, brothers and sisters, it is for us too, right? It should be for us as well. And what we'll see as we go through this book is we will see that, that this book is incredibly, incredibly relevant for us as God's people, especially where we are right now as a church. When we just think of our sort of historical moment here, 2021, Parkview Church, Iowa City, you will see one parallel after another as we walk through this amazing Old Testament book. And so I really hope that this study of Deuteronomy, it helps us be faithful to the mission that God has called us to and to discover the people that God has made us to be. Okay? It's incredibly practical, incredibly useful. There was a national women's conference several years ago, and they used this book as sort of the feature, the feature of, this, of their conference. Every talk was kind of brought out, was preached on Deuteronomy, and Mary Wilson really wonderfully summarized the whole book with really two words, three, I guess. Her summary of the whole book was this, listen and live. Listen and live. And as we start this journey through the book of Deuteronomy, Parkview Church, that, that really is the message that the Lord wants us to hear. Not just this morning, but as we study this book, listen and live. So here we are, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Again, you will be greatly helped if you have a copy of God's Word open. If you don't, that's okay. We've got the words on the screen. So I'll, I'll read this passage for us, and I'll pray, and we'll, we'll dive in. This is the word of the Lord. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban and Hezeroth and Dizeb. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 14th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth, and in Edrai, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying... The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. 
turn and take your journey and, and go to the hill country of the Amorites and, and to all their neighbors in the Arabah and the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon as, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in, take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Parkview Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help me now to proclaim it boldly. Lord, I pray that I would do so clearly. Father, and I pray that you would use this word this morning here in Deuteronomy chapter one, verses one through eight, Lord, that you would use this word, which we believe to be eternal and we know to be true. Lord, we simply ask that you would write this word on our hearts this morning, that you would use this word to shape us and to form us to be the people that you have made us to be. Lord, we ask these things the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, well, not just in high school, to this day, I, I just will confess, I hate running. I hate running. I don't know if anybody here can, can testify amen that one. I just hate running, okay? When I was in high school, all my friends were on the track team, and, and I had a, a track coach who my, my older brothers were really good really good at track and he really convinced me you gotta go out for track you gotta go out for track so eventually i just i just gave in to the pressure and i went out for track but i refused to run i threw the discus instead and so i spent three years now mind you six foot five about 145 pounds a stiff breeze could possibly just carry me away at any given moment okay wasn't much of me there so i was in the, in the ring throwing the discus now my senior year i hired a new coach Coach Meyer. Coach Meyer came in, joined the coaching staff, and, and he took look, one look at me spinning around in the discus circle and said, we're going to fix that right away, right? This guy was a long-distance runner, specifically 800s. He just had a passion for 800s. He's a college athlete, former college athlete who, who ran and was really, really fast at those middle-distance runners or middle-distance races. And so he convinced me to try to run an 800. You needed one 800 runner to get a good four by 800 team together to get to state, right? And I was a senior. I thought, you know what? I'd love to go to state. If you can, if you can get me to state, whatever, sign me up. I'll take it, right? Well, at the beginning, as we started to practice, I just, I mean, this was not, I mean, this was, this is not an easy race, right? Our practices were brutal. They, they were just terrible, but he was so passionate about getting this squad to state, that, that eventually that passion just, it just carried over, right? And it got to the point where I didn't totally know what we were doing, but what I saw throughout the season as it progressed was I saw my times improving. I saw I was actually a pretty decent 800 runner. Midway through the season, shoot, I enjoyed the 800. It was, it was really a miracle, it was, it was crazy. I would wake up and I would get ready to go to practice. Sometimes we'd have two a days. He, he, he regulated our diet. I mean, this guy, he had a mission to get us to state. And what he said, I did. Because I believed he could actually get there. I could see the progress as we move forward. Well, folks, as we look at our passage this morning, what we see is sort of a similar, a similar thing happened. 
right? Well, we look at the big idea that we're going to see this morning is that as we press on together Parkview Church, if we want to participate in the mission of God, we must listen to and trust in the God of the mission. I'll say it one more time. As we press on together, Parkview, if we want to participate in the mission of God, we must listen to and trust in the God of the mission. The reason why we got to state that year was because my coach knew what he was doing. And as forerunners, we trusted him. We ran how far he wanted us to run. We ate what, what he wanted us to eat because we knew that he had the ability to get us where we wanted to go. And that's exactly what we see as we study through the book of Deuteronomy. Is that's what God is calling us. If we want to participate to the mission that God has in front of us, then we must listen to, to and trust in the God of the mission. So before we get into the sermon, what I want to do, I've got a couple of points, and the points will be pretty quick, but it's really important as we start this super significant book that we have a little bit of background, a little bit of understanding of what is going on here in the book of Deuteronomy, okay? Now, Deuteronomy itself, the title itself, according to Hebrew tradition, the book is called The Book of Words, taking its title from the first words of the book. These are the words that Moses spoke. The name Deuteronomy that we use comes from the Greek title, which means second law. It's a translation of a verse later on in chapter 17 that refers to the book as being a copy of the law. However, it's, it's really a misunderstanding of what's happening here in, book, in Deuteronomy to call it the second law because essentially what it is is a, a re-articulation, a re-preaching of the one law that God has given us. He's simply stating it again. So as we set the scene, as we approach the scene here in chapter 1, the beginning of this important book, we see Moses and the Israelites find themselves east of the Jordan River on the threshold of the promised land. This is a significant moment in the history of God's people. After 40 years of journeying in the wilderness, the land now lies ahead of them and with it lies the possibility of rest and the fulfillment of God's promises. Promises that were given long ago to their ancestors, to, to Abraham. A promise that goes all the way back to the beginning pages of our Bible. And really it's a promise that consists of sort of two parts. One part is a people. We see this in, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, 1 through 3, when, when the word of God comes to Abraham and, and begins to make this covenant with Abraham. And, and declares to him that he would become a father of a great nation. And through the descendants of, of this nation, the people of Israel, God would use these people to bless all of the nations. So, so an important part of the promise is a people. But the second important part of the promise is not just the people, but it's also about a land. See, the promise is more than just the people. God's covenant also involved a land. His covenant people would one day dwell in a rich land described in Exodus chapter 3 verse 17 as a land flowing with milk and honey. So, so God would be with his people and he would place them in a land where he would dwell with them. So here, a moment right now, this promise has, has been given is, is close to actually happening, to being fulfilled and as they look over the Jordan and consider what is waiting for them in the land of Canaan, they're faced with a critical decision. Will they trust God? Will they cross the river and take possession of the land? 
Moses, as he stands there with his people, he knows this decision that they're facing will not be easy. Trusting God is not their natural disposition. It is not ours either. And he knows that if they don't trust God, they will forfeit their opportunity to experience the fullness of God's blessing. Challenges, uncertainties lie behind, beyond them, beyond the river. This is not going to be easy. Moses knows this all too well. Because you see, Moses has been here before, right? He, he's been here before. He watched the previous generation of God's people as they failed to trust in God, as they failed to take possession of the promised land, a people who refused to listen and trust the very word of God. And this is remarkable, really, when we think about it. See, all the people who are standing there with Moses on the threshold of the promised land, they were not in bondage. Their parents were. But their parents were here where they are now at one point before, but they refused to trust God. This is remarkable. This is, that, that was a generation who saw literally one miracle after another, who saw God come to his people and deliver them from the hand of slavery. These are a people who, who firsthand saw God lead them through the wilderness with a, with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. A people who saw God part the Red Sea as they walked across on land, allowing that sea to then crush and completely annihilate Pharaoh's army. This is a people who saw provision by God through sending bread from heaven. I mean, they saw one miracle after another. Yet when they stood in this land, some 38 years prior, those people who saw God do all those things refused to trust God. They refused. They didn't do it. And, and this point is precisely what Moses wants this new generation to understand. That they should not they should not follow in the footsteps of the former generation. So this is where Moses starts. Look down in your Bibles, if you will, verse six. I'll just reread six through eight. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb. So in Deuteronomy, Horeb is another way of saying Mount Sinai. It's another name for Mount Sinai. So as he speaks to them, and really the whole content of Deuteronomy is three messages that, that Moses preaches to God's people to prepare them to live life in the land. So as he starts his first message, he reminds them what God said to them at Mount Sinai. You have stayed long enough at this mountain. God would have said this to their fathers 38 years prior. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites, to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, and the lowland, in the Negev, and by the seacoast, in the land of the Canaanites, in Le Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in, take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and their offspring after them. 38 years ago, Mo God spoke through Moses to his people and said, go 
It is time to move. Break camp. Journey to the land I will give you. Now, if you see previously in the text, the, 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 the journey should have only taken 11 days. From Mount Sinai to Kadesh, uh, uh, Kadesh Barnea, it was an 11-day journey. But we're 40 years after, right? So as they journey to Kadesh Barnea, the southern gateway to the promised land, if, if you pick up the story of Norman's, Numbers 13, you discover that what happens, this is where when they first get there, they send spies in ahead to kind of scout out the land to see what it's like. They come back with this report that, yes, the land is good. It's flowing with milk and honey. It looks fantastic. However, there are massive people over there, right? There, there are significant threats waiting for us beyond the Jordan. There are big people with big cities, fortified walls, and we're terrified. We don't want to go over there. Are you kidding me? And they refuse to participate in the mission of God. They refuse to listen and to trust God's words. The reports of the mighty men in fortified cities sent fear throughout the camp. As a result, because they refused to listen to God and participate in his mission, God punished them. So for the rest of those 40 years, they wandered around the wilderness until all of them had died except for Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. And now here they are. A new generation stood knocking on the door of the promised land. An opportunity to learn from the mistakes of their parents, to listen to God, and to take hold of the promises of God. To listen and to live. A new opportunity. This is going to be great. So, this morning I want to point out three things as we consider Deuteronomy 1, verses 1 through 8, that are going to be really significant, significant, not just for us to make sense of this book, but to make sense of our lives, okay? Point number one, let's first consider together the mission of God. What is God up to in this story? Is this just a wild ride that the people of Israel are on with God? Are they just simply strung along willy-nilly in the desert for some 40 years? Not at all. As we read through the book, it becomes evident that there is a purpose behind all of this that serves as sort of the cadence, not only of this book, the drumbeat that, that, that kind of bangs in the background, not just of Deuteronomy, but throughout the entire Bible, and that is the mission of God. And just to summarize real quick, God's mission, as you read through his Bible, you will discover that God is on a mission to bring glory to himself throughout all of creation. Maybe an oversimplified way of putting it, but that's what he's up to. He wants to bring glory to himself throughout all of creation. For them, this is what it looked like. Israel then would have been covenanted with God. They would become his chosen people, and he would give them his presence. He'd give them his word, and as they followed his law, they, they would reflect his character and his holiness wherever they went. As he placed them in the land, the, the rest of the nations could look around and see, see this people who were uniquely different than everybody else, who were following God's ethic, his law, and they would look to that, those people and they would get a, a glimpse, an idea of what God was like. And as a result, God would be glorified. That's, that's kind of the idea of what it looked like for them. For us, Today, now, here, 2021, Iowa City, it looks different, right? 
The mission is certainly related, and I'm sure you'll notice as we go through this, you'll see some some similarities, but you'll also see some differences. See, God has not called us, Parkview Church, to conquer a small piece of land across the Jordan, as much as maybe some people like the idea of conquering a small piece of land. That's not the mission that we're signing up for today, okay? We're in a different place in redemptive history. So how do we participate in this mission? It looks different, See, the task, if we were to think of our our mission and how it looks different, I want you to think in two categories. Think of the task that God's called us to and think of the scope. The task is essentially different. He's not calling us to take land. He's calling us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the task he's given. You just saw Eric give kind of a testimony of what that looks like in his life before the service. The task he's given us is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus himself, before his ascension, gives, gives us the great commission, right? And calls his followers to essentially break camp. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, so Jesus commissions his church, us today, to make disciples, Oftentimes we can think of real, maybe cute, slick slogans about what our mission could be and should be, but Jesus makes it pretty clear. If you're a church of Jesus Christ, make disciples. That's what our mission is. The scope is also different. The scope is different. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, before his ascension, he, he, he tells the church, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He's not calling us to make disciples simply of one small sliver of land. The assignment is that we make disciples of all the ends of the earth, all of the nations, that we make disciples wherever God has placed us across the entire world. So to summarize, the mission of the church is to go into all the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. His end goal is still the same, his glory, okay? But the way we participate in it looks fundamentally different than how they did in the book of Deuteronomy. So Parkview, this is precisely what God is calling us to this very morning. In fact, this is what God is not just calling you to, this is what he's inviting you to be a part of. Perhaps there's some of us this morning that God is saying to you this very day, you have stayed too long on this mountain. It is time for you to break camp and to participate in what I am doing throughout the nations. I mean, this is exciting, right? Right? God has has not just saved us to himself, but he's he's enlisted us into his people so that we would participate in his purposes. And this is what faithfulness to God looks like, making disciples. So I'll just pause and I'll just ask you a question and just for you to think about. What does it look like for you right now to participate in this mission? If this is such a critical piece of what God is calling us to, what does disciple making look like for you? Just think about it. What does it look like? What should it look like? Be a great thing to process with somebody as you leave here, maybe a family member, a roommate. What does disciple making look like for you? Secondly, 
consider the mission of God, I want us to think briefly about the method of God. If the mission of God is to bring glory to himself throughout all of creation, God has a vision, a desire to spread his glory throughout all of the world. How does he do this? Well, it's interesting. It's not how I would do it. He does it through a people. He does it through a people. God has determined that his mission will be accomplished through his people. This is remarkable. Now, when I was studying this passage, one thing that really stood out to me in this passage was God's insistence on using people. As you read through this story, you know, if you were just pick up and start reading from Exodus, the minute they start this journey, you would see that these people are not an impressive group of people, right? They are constantly grumbling, constantly complaining. While God is providing for them with one miracle after another, they are filing one complaint after another, right? Not an impressive group of people. Not really a good look, shall we say. First generation of Israel, a chosen people delivered from bondage, had every reason to trust in God. Yet, they refused to listen to him and to take possession of the land. God's response is not, fine, I'll do it by myself. No, not what God does. Instead, he insists on using a people. Now, it's not that generation. It will be another generation. But when he does it, he will do it through a people. They're, they're, they're a part of his plan. His methodology for accomplishing his purposes are a people. And the same is true for us right now, today. Today. God loves us, and in order to save us from our sin, he sends his son on a rescue mission. His son, Jesus, trusts God completely, obedient to God, even to the point of death on a cross. And as a result, those who, who trust in Jesus and the work that he accomplished, the Bible tells us that he has delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, a kingdom of, of people. First Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Listen to this part that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So as, as God rescues and redeems the people to himself, he brings them to himself and he uses them to proclaim his excellencies to others, to exalt in Jesus and to spread a glory of God throughout the nations. God saves us and then he sends us. And this is precisely who God is. He is ascending God. God sent the Father on a rescue mission. When, when, or sorry, God sent the Son on a rescue mission. And when Jesus was, was crucified and resurrected and ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. They sent the Holy Spirit who then, with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, sends the church. We are God's people, then we are a missional people. And making disciples simply isn't optional. It's what, it's what we are, and it's what we do. Thirdly, I want you to consider... So we looked at the, the mission of God, the methodology specifically that he uses, the way he accomplishes this mission strategically is through a people. Finally, I want you to look at the means of God. So for these people in Deuteronomy, they're really at this 
sort of decision point in their history. And we'll see it throughout our study that Deuteronomy is, is a book which is really fundamentally sort of concerned with this idea of decision, making a decision. And these first three chapters, the, the nation is reminded of the decisions made in the past. But they're also presented with a new opportunity to obey in the present. Will they learn from the failures of their fathers? Will they decide to press on? Will they boldly take one step of faith after another, confronting new challenges, new fears, new uncertainties? Will they listen? Will they live? This is a decisive moment, and Moses knows this. He knows he will not be able to accompany them in the land. He recognizes that in order for these people to press on, they must place their trust in God. Their confidence in accomplishing God's purposes is, is not because they are a mighty people, but because they are accompanied by a mighty God. Right? The problem that their forefathers made is they went into the land, they saw the giants, and you know who they compared the giants to? Themselves. That's where they went wrong. What they should have done is compared the giants to their mighty, strong, great, unmovable, unbreakable God. And if they would have done that, they would have just marched into the land. This is a decisive moment. Folks, the only reason the people of God can have the hope to accomplish the mission of God is because of who the God of the mission is. That's the only reason that we have any confidence whatsoever. That's why on the final moments of these people, of the time with these people, Moses' sermon is essentially a recounting of God's faithfulness, of his gracious provision to them so that as they, as they face the threats that lie ahead, the dangers of the, the unknown, that they would do so with the confidence that God is with them and nobody can touch him. You know, I can't help but read the story and think about sort of the decisive moment that, in the history of our church that we face. There's no question in 2021 of the opportunity before us. Folks, the harvest is plentiful. There are people in our community, in our city, in our state, in, in our country who've never heard the good news of Jesus, who don't know the gospel. God has called us to himself and sends us into those fields to proclaim his excellencies. The, the task is so clear. The question is, how will we respond Closing, I just want to point your verse, your, your attention quickly to verse 8. Look what it says in verse 8. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. Ask them to look. Just look out there and see the opportunity. 
On April 23rd, or sorry, April 3rd, Dr. King, the night before his assassination, delivered his famous mountaintop speech in support of the striking sanitation workers in Memphis. And, and as, he, as he finished this speech, I want you to listen to the words. I mean, it really echoes our story here this morning in Deuteronomy. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. Remember, the next day, Dr. King will be assassinated. But it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight, not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That's how he concludes his final speech, his final message. See, Dr. King, we know, had a vision. He, he had what he would refer to previously as a dream of what this nation could look like. And as he wanted to mobilize these people, he wanted to instill in them confidence that what was a dream would one day become a reality, a certainty. So as he, as he concludes his final speech, he, he issues them this confident message. I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. Now, it's debatable whether or not we've actually accomplished that dream. I mean, certainly on some level, we've made some steps. But think about this in relation to us as the church. See, God gives us, doesn't tell us just simply what it could look like. At the end of the story, we learn what it will look like. And as we read in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, the vision of where all of this is headed, listen. After this, I looked, this is a vision of heaven, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What God has planned to exalt himself, to bring glory to himself throughout all of the nations as we look into and get a vision of what that day will look like, we have total confidence that what God is planning to do, he will do. And it's our joy as his people to get to participate in that mission. And I can think of no greater thing for you to give your life to and for this church to give future generations to, making disciples of the nations. My goodness. Church, will you stand up? Father God, thank you so much for your word this morning. And I pray, just, uh, just as I'm sure Moses was praying in the, those final 
sermons that he was delivering to those people, Lord, that, that we would be a people who will simply listen and live. We ask these things in your name.